0: where our weekly radio programming is archived. These podcasts are available wherever you're listening or at christiancrusaders.org. Okay, let's get started with today's episode. Here's our host, Matt Reister, the Executive Director of Christian Crusaders.
1: Hey, everybody, Matt Reister here with the CC Podcast Conversations, and I'm with Andrew and we're excited to bring you an interview with Steve Dace, who was a guest at the 2023 102nd annual Cedar Falls Bible Conference.
2: Yeah, yep, good interview, uh, and this uh, this is going to be about a or, or have a lot to do with a uh, a film, and uh, the film is Nefarious. And Matt, you've seen it, and I haven't gotten a chance to see it yet, so. Um, kind of fill in our audience uh, that might not be familiar
1: yeah so first of all i would just say steve Dace, some of you might have heard his name related to political stuff and uh that's not anything what this interview is about we brought him to the cedar falls bible conference to talk about the movie nefarious which is a christian movie about demonic possession and influence it's i'd say a psychological thriller Mm -hmm. it is rated r because of a scene at the very end of it, which if you've seen it, you would know what I'm talking about. It's not a horror movie. We showed it at the Bible conference, mm-hmm. and we brought Dace because he wrote a book that inspired it called The Nefarious Plot, and he was one of the producers of the movie, and it just delves into spiritual warfare in a very interesting and compelling way. You need to see the movie, Andrew.
2: I know. I know. It, my summer's been crazy, so, you know, it's one of those. I have a, I have a list of movies that, that I still have to go and And uh, I just just was
1: having lunch with a couple today and this movie and this interview came up and uh, they had not seen it either. And you can go see it on Amazon prime, of course, Mm -hmm. read the reviews and all that kind of stuff, because if you got kids and I'm not going to tell you to watch it if you shouldn't, but for me and my family, I'm glad we did. Yep. And, um, spiritual warfare is real. This movie gets at that in a really interesting way. And, uh, after Steve gave a message at the Bible conference, the session after that, I was able to interview him on yep. stage. And so we're really excited to uh, share this with you.
2: Yeah, and I will say, uh, it's not that they're totally related, but um, if, if you haven't heard it yet, uh, we have the Cameron Arnett uh, interview for, that we did at NRB at the National Religious Broadcasters, uh, and he was an actor in this movie. Uh, and so it's uh, the the two interviews definitely tie together. And and if you like this one, uh, go check out that interview as well.
1: Yeah, Cameron Arnett he played a a character in the movie named Trusty Styles. Most of the movie takes place in a prison. There's a inmate who has he's on death row, and there's a psychiatrist who's interviewing him prior to his execution. And Cameron Arnett uh, is a barber an inmate who's a barber and he's kind of a what do you call that when a big time actor comes in and plays a small part the cameo cameo yeah so yeah that's good i forgot about that yeah that that that's a great interview uh yeah so hey we've got a lot of awesome stuff in addition to this and the cameron arnett one as well as our cc broadcast and the daily dose devotions man what do we got over like thousand two thousand episodes of stuff
2: we have yeah it's over two thousand episodes we're getting close to a hundred episodes uh just of these interviews too so uh yeah if you haven't listened to some of our past stuff you got your work cut out for you we got a long list of of awesome interviews
1: and if you want to help us out give us a five-star rating and uh, write us a review on whatever platform you're listening on share it with a friend and thanks for tuning in to the cc podcast conversations Uh, before we jump into this just kind of welcome our CC podcast audience I'm the director of a ministry called Christian Crusaders radio and internet ministry and we do podcasts interesting interviews with inspiring Christians and this certainly fits in that category and this interview will be hosted there as well as on our YouTube page which let me say this quickly please go subscribe to our YouTube page it helps us with getting the word out and eventually we'll hopefully be able to monetize some things and that'll help the bottom line so Steve People are raving about that last session, and I think they maybe wish that you were here again by yourself without me, uh, but that's, that's the way it goes. Um, tell the people how the book, The Nefarious Plot, came to be and how the movie came out of that, as briefly as you can, but with enough detail that kind of paints the picture.
3: Sure, I, was, uh, I went to Washington, D.C. for the first time with uh, my first wide-release book. I went out there to do some publicity and I jump in the shower and this voice in my head out of nowhere just says, this book is dedicated to all the useful idiots out there, especially those of you who had no idea you were being used all this time. Tell people where useful idiots comes from. Oh, that's from Karl Marx, The Communist Manifesto. Okay. And uh, especially those of you who had no idea you were being used all this time, for you are the most useful idiots of them all, nefarious. And I thought, I, I, you know, I know there's a lot of temptation when you travel without your wife, but that's really weird to happen in the shower, you know? And, uh, and so I, I just molded over for a little bit in my head as I finished up the shower, went out, did my appointments, and came back after dinner that night. And sat down at my laptop, and and I thought, well, you know, if if Barack Obama can write not one but two memoirs before he is forty, I have one wide release book. I'm qualified to write sequels to C.S. Lewis's work, you know, (laughs) and so what if we took this nefarious fella in my head and took the idea of screw tape letters, where we are allowed behind the curtain to, to see the temptation of us as individuals and What if we are able to see behind the curtain a takedown of an entire culture because anytime you write a sequel The threat has to be bigger otherwise. What's the point, right? And so I, I put a lord in front of nefarious I gave him a, a, a rank a high rank in hell And I just sat down and I, I wrote the introduction and I patterned him after Heath Ledger's Joker and J.R. Ewing that was kind of the composite <laughs> I had in my head And uh, I called a couple of theologian buddies of mine, including one, a pastor here in Iowa, Kerry Gordon, out on the west side of the state, if any of you guys know him. And I I said, hey, I wanna read something to you, no setup. I'm gonna read it to you cold, and I just want your reaction. Okay. And I read uh, these these three guys, the introduction, including Kerry, and they were blown away. And I thought, okay, well, maybe I have something here. And um, this is the longest, that book is the longest it's ever taken me to write a book. I had to walk away from it for weeks and months at a time. It was just not comfortable being in those shoes. You know, when you stare at the abyss long enough, it starts staring back, kind of a thing. And uh, I, I published the book in 2016. It was a modest success. We sold about 5,000 copies. Only about two percent of books a year will sell even 2,000 copies. I don't think people realize how hard it is to have a best-selling book. And. Uh, I thought that would be the end of it. And six months later, um, in September of that year, I get a call out of the blue from a guy at the time I did not yet know that I now work with named Glenn Beck. And he said, hey, man, a mutual friend of ours gave me your book, and it blew my mind. And it's like C.S. Lewis-level C.S. Lewis good, and I want to have you on my show to talk about it. And I'm like, Glenn, I just don't really think the 10 million people that listen to you every day want to hear about my book. But just in case I'm wrong, sure, I'll show up, you know? <laughs> and, uh, um, driving, around, <laughs> driving around L.A. that day, if you were here earlier, I mentioned a name, Chris Jones. And he was part of a new company called Believe Entertainment. They had splintered off from Pure Flix. He worked with a couple of writer's directors named Carrie Solomon and Chuck Conselman. They wrote the big hit for Pure Flix, God's Not Dead. And they wanted to branch out on their own and kind of do more, I guess we would call it grittier fare from a, from a biblical worldview. And they always were interested in like spiritual warfare and Frank Peretti kind of stuff. And and they were getting ready to do Unplanned and they were wondering what their next movie would be. And Chris heard me talking about this book, gets to the office, orders it on Kindle, reads it in like one sitting that morning because he can't put it down. And then when the other two guys come in that afternoon, he says, all right, I'm just going to read something to you and I want your reaction. And he said, pick a page number. And one of the guys just picked an idle page number. And he just grabbed that page and started reading it. And the guys were like, that's a movie. And they, I got an email that night, my wife was at a women's retreat, and I was, the kids were little still, and so I put them to bed, and I went downstairs to the man cave to unwind, which for me usually means firing up the Madden. And uh, I get an alert saying, hey, we wanna buy the movie rights to your book, and I was convinced a Nigerian prince now spoke English, you know? <laughs> and uh, I deleted the email and just moved on. And about 10 minutes later, that little voice in the back of my head that was in in the shower in D.C., because where else is it better to be inspired about a demonic takeover of America than going to Washington, D.C.? (laughs) And uh, that little voice in the back of my head said, you might want to check that again. And so I grabbed the email out of my recycle bin. I researched these guys. I, I found out they were legit. I contacted them back, and we negotiated back and forth, their company and mine. And right around Christmas of 2016 is when we signed the movie deal. Yeah.
1: And, and tell them about the, where the idea came from to position the movie with relation to the book.
3: So we started storyboarding. For those of you that don't know what that means, there's two terms in movie making with storyboarding. You might know the more formal term. And this is when you're a big budget production with a major studio, artists will literally come in and try to render the script writer and director's vision so that when they go to actually film the movie and construct sets, there's like an outline of maybe what everybody was thinking. We didn't have that kind of budget. So, the other kind of storyboarding is we're literally just guys on a whiteboard sitting in a room coming up with what the story is going to be. And so, as soon as Florida reopened, or I'm sorry, as soon as California reopened in 2020, uh, I flew out to Burbank uh, for a week out there and we started storyboarding the movie. And the first challenge we had was how do we take a, a 240 page rant and translate that into a movie? I mean, that'd make a great stage play but no one wants to sit in a visual movie and listen to a guy just berate them for two hours, at least not if you like are healthy, you know, and, uh, and, and Chuck, one of our writer's directors, pulls out the preface to the book, and I, I modeled the book directly after Lewis, in fact, the, the, the hardcover edition originally, it wasn't planned this way, ha- ended up having the exact same amount of pages in it as Screwtape Letters has. It was not a plan, just worked itself out. And so if you read Screwtape Letters, the only part that Lewis writes in his own voice is the preface. I did the same thing, and in my preface I said, I have no intentions of telling you how I came upon this demonic manuscript, but who knows if we ever sell the movie rights to this one day, that's how we'll bring this book to the big screen. It was a joke, you know? And so Chuck just read this out loud the first day of our storyboard meeting and said, that's what we're going to do. And we all looked at him and said, that's what we're going to do. We're going to tell the story of where this manuscript came from. And so the movie is, takes you right up to the publishing of the book.
1: Very, very cleverly and, and well-written. Um, I've followed you long enough to know, and I started to hear through mutual friends and contacts that we have, that this movie was afoot. And Steve is a movie junkie. And so I was like, okay, this is gonna be a Christian movie and there's no way Steve Dace is gonna sign off on it being, and this is no disrespect, but your typical cheesy, schmarmy Christian movie. So how did
3: you make sure that didn't happen? I literally put in my contract, no cheesy conversion scenes. It's literally in there, all right? (laughs) I'm not kidding, I, I had two demands. My kids would hate me if I ever made a movie and there was no like after credit scene. So there had to be, they're all they all grew up in the Marvel era, right? All right. So there had to be an after-credit scene and there could be no cheesy conversion scenes. But the there's a reason why this movie can't have that. And because of the success of it, we're actually discussing more nefarious content and more nefarious content that will be more redemptive in nature. But but when I wrote the book, I struggled with the ending for a long time. Because I I'm kind of a weird consumer in that I like grittier content, but I want a redemptive ending. When I get to the point that I hate every character, I tune out, I can't stand it. When I get to the point that I root against the redemption of characters, I'm out. And sadly, that's too much of our content that they're creating nowadays, you know? And so when I got to the ending of the book, I mean, I flirted with ideas like calling Franklin Graham and see if he'd write like an afterword, because I didn't want to end the book on a demon spiking the ball in the end zone, you know? And then finally my wife looked at me after weeks of, you know, me kind of whining about this and said, hey, is the book written by a demon or not? And I said, yes, then it needs to end, she said, like a book would by a demon. So the book ends with a spiking of the ball in the end zone. The final words that Nefarious says in the book, mene, mene, tequila, parson, which is Farsi, it's it's what Daniel said, reads off the wall uh, to Nebuchadnezzar uh, or to his offspring when they have broken out the fine china from the temple and used it to basically furnish their orgy the night that that kingdom is destroyed by, I believe it's Cyrus. And they read the writing on the wall, you have been weighed, measured, found in the balance and wanting. Those are the last words Nefarious speaks in the film, by the way, that's on purpose. And so those are the last words of the book. And, and I thought, for, for the story to truly have the potency that we couldn't wrap it up neatly. Because the story is, a, is an allegory for where we are at culturally. There is no guarantee of a happy ending to this story. And if you get to the ending of the movie, the, the whole movie is a, is a provocation. Which, if you ever listen to me on the air, should shock no one. Okay, The whole movie's intention is to provoke you the whole way. You and the uh, believers and unbelievers alike, and even the ending does that. And so we came up with the idea of a soft, redemptive ending. That's what the Beck interview is at the end, where James is now, uh, on. his arc has has evolved. He, He came in, shut off, convinced he was the people we were waiting for. He had all the secrets of the universe unlocked. He was smart, edumacated. He knew. And he ends it saying, I was wrong about everything. And so now he's got to begin the long road back up the other hill of, well, what will now replace that belief system? We cannot have that character go through an earth-shattering event. And then at the end, he walks out on a beautiful summer day, looks at the sky and drops to his knees and says, Jesus, come into my heart. We have ruined a lot of our storytelling doing that. It's not real. It's just people have a long, once they're broken, it's a long road back to wholeness. And my own faith is my own testimony. It's a a jagged road on a narrow path, and you fall a lot, all right? And so we wanted to end it with James open for business. He's willing to listen to you now. But when he walks out of that interview, he thinks he's won, all right? He forgets that he called on God and said, God, save me, when he had the gun at 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 his throat, and God did, and the gun didn't fire. He forgets. In fact, when Beck says, are you a believer, he's like, ah, uh, no, I don't know. Yeah. All right. And so he's, he's, he, he, th- he still thinks he can do this on his own. Yeah. And so when he runs into nefarious in the form of another human being now, he is reminded there are no neutral positions. Choose Jesus day whom you will serve. You're on one side or another. And then for the believer, that is to provoke us. The, the evil never sleeps and it will not go to rest. You don't win until you go to rest or Jesus returns, whatever comes back. It doesn't end. We, we, we all stood in a cheered last June when Roe v. Wade was overturned. We won a 50-year fight finally. Many of you that are older than me thought you'd never live to see that day. But yesterday, I did an interview on my show in Ohio a woman from Ohio right to life, well they're to—they're trying now to put on the constitutional ballot that you can just now kill kids whenever you want and mutilate them whenever you want and put that in the state constitution. So what was the response to taking their shibboleth and smashing it in their faces? What was their response? To come back with something even worse than what they did to us for 50 years. We need to make sure, Too many. the reason your culture is going woke is because too many of your churches are not awake. And that's the final message of the film.
1: So I asked, by the way, let me say this. We don't have a bunch of books to sell, which is whatever, missed opportunity. But I talked to Joyce back there, and she's going to take orders of anybody who wants a book, a nefarious plot. And Steve has agreed to once we get those orders from Joyce's store, I'm going to send him a box of books, and he's going to sign them for the Bible Conference crowd, and it might take a few weeks to get those back. But put your order in with Joyce, and we'll get that taken care of. Thank you for doing that. You bet. Um, so I, I put the word out when we watch the film. If anybody has a question you'd like me to ask Steve, and these are two questions that were specifically given to me, and I, these are going to be simple answers, and they're kind of just random questions but I think they're good Lucas Seegerstrom, who's a sports junkie he's my assistant basketball coach at Waterloo Christian School I
3: keep telling you guys Kate McNamara will be good stop it already <laughs> goodness he, he picked on something
1: that I did not pick you're a huge Michigan football fan where would you rank Tom Brady in the history of quarterbacks
3: in the end in, in period yeah I mean he's the goat he's the goat. okay yeah. that's what I thought you were he's gonna say he's the standard by which all other standards are measured I, you know. I actually agree with you
1: um So this is really interesting, and Lucas, the sports junkie, picked up on this, and I bet you haven't been asked this question, but maybe you have. The character who's on death row is named Edward Wayne Brady, Brady. and the actor that plays him is named Sean Patrick Flannery, Mm -hmm. and Tom Brady's real name is Thomas Edward Patrick Brady (laughs) Jr. Was
3: that by design? No, in fact, you have thought this through much more than we have, I'll tell you that. That's hilarious. The reason his name is Edward Wayne Brady is because it just appears every serial killer needs three names. That's we, for sure. <laughs> we came up with no other reason other than that, but yes. Has anyone asked you that question? No. That, you, are, you are right. So I was wondering, what am I doing in Cedar Falls, Iowa, on a Tuesday afternoon in August, to get asked a question that I've been all over the country and no one has asked me yet? So you guys did it. There we go. You broke the seal. <laughs> you did it. Yes.
1: Second question. This one's got a little more depth to it, and I thought it was an interesting question. And by the way, there's spoilers all over this session, so if you haven't watched the movie, that's on you, and you should go watch it anyway. Um, uh, you went after abortion, you went after euthanasia. Were you also going after capital punishment?
3: So I, uh, this question has been asked a lot, and the answer to that question is no. There is something more going on than just abortion, or euthanasia, or capital punishment. Those three things are linked together. Not, no, one, uh, no one involved in our movie believes executing a murderer is morally equivalent to the execution of an innocent child or the uh, termination of a life that you deem to be no longer useful to you because it's too problematic to care for it. The issue here is that James is representative of the culture as a whole. I used to say this on WHO, so maybe some of you remember. I James still say the it Psychiatrist. Out. Yeah, James the Psychiatrist. Every government in the history of humanity has been a theocracy. Every single one. We're only debating who the Theo is, and the form ofocracy. Is it a meritocracy? Is it a kleptocracy? Is it a democracy? What is it a monarchy? What, what's the form ofocracy? But behind it is a theocracy because every form of government in human history has claimed that either it was God or it was instituted by God. And that was really the arc of human history for about 6,000 years until this country was formed. And it came up with a very unique middle ground and said, our rights come from God. And so government is only instituted among men to secure those God-given rights. And so, therefore, those in the government, since the Bible says God is no respecter of persons, meaning your station is of no importance to God. He doesn't care. He's God. He's not impressed. So, therefore, the governed and the governing are equally accountable to God. And that was a unique premise in the long, small-e evolution of human human governance. That, That had never been asserted before until the founding of this country. And so since we have removed the God, we are fulfilling the great Catholic thinker Chesterton's axiom, that whenever a government removes the God, the government will become the God. And we are doing that now, all right? And so something has to rule. Uh, Anarchy or libertarianism isn't a long-term solution. Something something must rule. And so James is, is embodiment of the spirit of the age. The government rules, the state rules, the state is in whom I live and breathe. The government, the government tells me when it is safe. The, I await further instructions from the government. The government educated me. The government tells me the truth. And so what the, go, the government is playing God, and therefore so is James. James said, I will ascend, like, like when Isaiah talks about what caused Lucifer to fall. I will ascend. I will be like the Most High. I will rule. When the enemy comes to Adam and Eve, ye will be like God and so James says, I got to decide when my mom couldn't suffer anymore. I get to decide that. Not knowing, of course, the very next day, whatever the ailment was that had bedeviled his mother, we might, science might have discovered a cure for it the next day, a week later, a month later. He did, James, does is he God? No. So he doesn't know the future, does he? But he's going to play God by deciding as if he does. I, so I know when that life is no longer worthy. Same thing with the child. I know when that life is is really not wanted. And then we get to Edward. They won't even consider a spiritual application here. They're so shut off from the larger spiritual situation that the system is not even willing to listen. The system has failed Edward all the way through. Now, that does not mean Edward is a victim. He committed those crimes. But the very systems that are put in place, from his grandmother buying him a Ouija board, family, to then later when he gets into, when he, when he is being prosecuted, the state, the institutions that God puts into place to stop the enemy from infiltrating us and infesting us on a systematic or individual level have all failed, Edward, the whole way through. There were no guardrails the aunt introduced him, or is it the grandmother? I can't remember. Introduces him into this dark world, opens the path. I mean, who you would you trust a family member. This is a good toy. It's a good thing to try. It's fun. And then the system the whole way through fall, fails him the whole way through because it acts as if it knows who is God or it, it's, it, it, it itself is God. So these three crimes that are the MacGuffin of our plot that make the story go, they are emblematic of a satanic nature. I am God. I will rule in his place. Awesome.
1: So I was at National Religious Broadcasters representing the CC podcast. I did an interview with Cameron Arnett.
3: Cameron's one of your actors. He plays the barber in a film, and he's great in that one scene. His
1: name is Trusty Styles in the movie. And um, I asked him specifically about what was going on in that scene, and I want to see if your answer is similar to his. So here's what I asked him. If you remember the scene, Cameron Arnett, black guy, who's shaving the head of Edward before he's to get executed. And when Edward first comes in, Cameron kind of whispers in his ear, knowing he's condemned to die, he's going to go to the chair in just a few moments, leans down into his ear and says, brother, there's something like this. There's nothing you can't be forgiven of, brother. And you kind of get the sense that this guy is a Christian who's got to cut this guy's hair, and he's trying to a last-ditch effort to help him know Christ before he goes and is uh, executed. Well, by the end of the scene, which you don't see the entire haircut, but by the end of the scene, it skips ahead, and Trusty, who seemed to be ministering to Edward, is now fed up with Edward, and he basically says, get that guy out of here. And as he's walking out the door, he goes, no one's gonna miss you. So something shifted in Trusty's heart toward Edward. What were you guys trying to do with that scene?
3: That is when you're, the, the first scene is correct, the first aspect of that scene, yes. The idea that this is just a guy who went the wrong way, like everybody else in prison, made a few choices that then led him on the dark end that they're at now, and now he's facing the end, and there's one last opportunity to recognize who you are, what you did, and seek redemption for it, and Eddie rejects it, because that's not Eddie, it's nefarious. And so I think that's when you get to the point, The the the, the world is divided into two kinds of people. Sheep and wolves. Now, we are referred to as sheep. They are the dumbest mammals in the phylum. And that's from the being that loves us more than anybody else. So that tells you who we, what we really are, okay? But sheep just don't know. Wolves don't want to know. Wolves are predators. A pastor's job is to feed the sheep... Shoot the wolves, metaphorically speaking. If you let the wolves into the sheep's pen, what will they do to the sheep? They will devour them. Like Augustine said, there are many sheep without, many more wolves within. So this whole seeker-friendly model that we have now just keep coming over and 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 over again. And never be challenged, never be confronted, never be tasked with anything. Just consume. Just consume our product. And don't forget to give, of course. Yeah. That's not a biblical model of church. Jesus is calling people out constantly. When he performs his first miracle, one of his, one of his best miracles, the feeding of the 5,000, and he walks, he looks at the tells the people that are eating, he says, now, you enjoyed that? That was a nice show. Let me tell you the truth behind it. If you're going to come after me, you must eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. And the people are disgusted and like, what is, te- what is this teaching? And they begin to walk out. Jesus does not chase after the seekers. Instead, he turns to his own disciples and says, Will you desert me too. Discipleship is the model of the commission. Not endless evangelism for, for, for that, that's just an end, in, uh, in, an end unto itself. It's discipling the nations that is the model.
1: And, and evangelism is a function of discipleship. It's the, ste-
3: it's the first key step of it, sure. Yeah. But it, but it's not a means to an end. The idea of church is where you just go for a while to get saved and go somewhere else to learn. That's not. That's Western consumerism. That's a pastor is supposed to be able to do all those things at the same time. That's why James says a pastor gets double the honor but double the blame. It's a hard job. Like in my line of work in politics, people whenever it's their pref- preferred candidate, you know, with Trump or DeSantis, that was a really hard questions. Yeah. It's a hard job, guys. It's the hardest job in the world. It should be like really hard to get it, and you should face the hardest questions while facing it. Don't stand in this pulpit unless you're willing to do the hard job. Have somebody else who's willing to do the hard job stand here instead. And so it starts off, he thinks this is a sheep led astray. By the end, it's a wolf. Get him out of here. Wolf has to go. Kick the dust off your, think about this. We sit here and beg and plead over and over and over again in the face of rejection, and yet the one who spread his arms and legs out as far and wide on a wooden cross as he possibly could looked at his disciples and said, "Now your job's just to deliver the message. If they don't go for it, that's a them problem. Kick the dust off your sandals and move on to the next town. There is no 11th commandment: Thou must beat thy head against thou wall. No, it's not there." That doesn't mean be a jerk. Don't, hey, hey, They, call, they you know, the, the jerk store called and they're out of Steve's. I've committed that mistake many times, trust me, okay? But, but move on. You're not in bondage to endless rejection. You're an ambassador. Deliver the message of your king, and whether it is accepted or rejected is not your responsibility. That is so freeing. Take it from somebody who works in broadcasting while trying to walk a narrow road. I, the, taking the pressure off of me to make you agree with me. No. All I have to do is deliver the message yeah. and use the talent that God gave me to make that message delivery as compelling as I can. What you do with it is your problem and not mine.
1: Good. A uh, couple of my favorite scenes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you my two favorite scenes, and then I want to ask you one of your favorite scenes. I loved, just loved, to the point that you just made about Pastors and pulpits. I love the scene with the priest who does not. Well, I'm believe glad because this was my
3: biggest contribution to the script. Was this scene? But go ahead. Okay,
1: and the reason I loved it is because it's calling out what is everywhere. I was talking to somebody about it yesterday, and, and they said what's great about that is it forces sheep, people who are in the seats who aren't really critically thinking, to at least acknowledge the concept that there are men of the cloth, clergy members, pastors, priests whose worldview and belief system has very little to align with scripture. Mm -hmm. I love that, so thank you for that. Number two, I, I thought that last climactic scene, which was very graphic, was very well done. I think it had to be graphic because nothing communicated Satan's hatred for Edward more than that. You saw a little bit of it with the last meal getting taken away, which was a little bit heart-wrenching. But then that last scene was very graphic, and, and you can't help but go, Satan wants to do that to every one of us. Every ounce of pain, every ounce of torment possible. And uh, those
3: are my two favorite scenes. What's one of your favorites? Well, the, can I go back to the priest scene really quick? Yeah. This is the reason why we put that. In. That was actually the last idea we came up with. when we Which, which one? The priest scene. Priest. We, yeah. we got to the end of our storyboard, and... And I actually interjected and said, you know, our, our prime audience for this film are going to be believers. And they're going to wonder, you know, church, you know, prisons don't have chaplains, there's no ministers, I mean, where, where's the church at? And I think, I said, we need to deal with that, and I think we need to deal with it up front before we even get into the three murders, so that right away, that, in the back of your mind, you're not thinking the whole way through the movie, when's the exorcism scene? That, that, we want to let you know right up front, it's never coming. Okay, and so that's and then from that launching point, all of us got together and came up with the idea. Like he's wearing a Unitarian um, scarf. If you recognize that, okay, those are called stoles. Yes, Steve. Yeah. we 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 really wanted to go overboard and put like you know, pronoun pins and stuff. We just thought that'd be too on the nose. Okay, so we thought the Unitarian scarf and let's hire kind of a wimpy actor. You know? Yes. And uh, he performed it admirably, I'll say that. And if you were there, we were there on the set those days that that scene was being filmed, man, he was scared to death of Sean. That scene where Sean reaches his hand out, so that's not in the script. That's a guy who was a black belt in martial arts. Just, he could smell the weakness on this guy, how afraid he was. And he just, his instinct took over and he couldn't restrain himself and he went for the kill and he reaches his hand out and that guy jumped back. That was all real. That was all ad libbed. And uh, when he got done filming, they, when he's walking out, you see that look when he looks back and doesn't look back. That happened on the set, guys. He just walked away. Like we couldn't do any or reshoots or anything. He just walked away. He was freaked out. He disappeared on us. We finally heard from him when the movie came out and he said, it's a really good movie, but I don't think it's about theology at all. It's, a, it's, a psych, it's, about, it's all psychological. So clearly he was not down with what we were doing, but, uh, but we, we, we wanted to see right away that, and, and that's also when we came up with the idea that the only time in the film that nefarious will show any weakness is when he thinks the church actually walks into the room. Because we wanted you guys to see this is what the reaction should be. When you walk into the room and you are a carrier pigeon for the Holy Spirit. When you walk in in the spirit of Christ, the most powerful being who speaks the cosmos into existence. When you walk into a room, demons shudder. Like when you die, you want demons to wipe the sweat off their brow and say... Life got easier with him gone, he's out of the way. You want them to have a file on you, man, know who you are. You want them to put the worst neighbors around you because that's a sign that you're on their radar, okay? And so we wanted, we wanted you to see that when, James, or when, Eddie, or when, when, when uh, Eddie thinks, when Nefarious thinks that the church is gonna walk in, he's afraid. And then when he, feels out, when he figures out, oh, the church did walk in, know what I'm saying? Then he knows he's back in control. And that was the purpose of that scene. And that was to. And the line when after that's over, when James says, "I didn't know this was a fight," uh-huh. and Nefarious says, "That's why you're losing." That's aimed square at all of us, and all of and the church collectively in America. And I think it's one of the best scenes in the movie. Um, it's hard to choose a favorite scene probably my favorite scene after watching the movie many times with audiences around the country is the one time that we put a political manifestation on the agenda because we really wanted to highlight that what we're seeing politically is not a political agenda it's it's a it's a it's a political construct of a demonic spiritual agenda and so we didn't want to make it very political straight up much of it but there's one scene where they do go back and forth, and it's the, it's the scene where James finally learns where the true roots of all of his bad ideas he thinks are sm- so smart comes from. And he just starts you know, going off this like laundry list of, of progressive accomplishments, and, and Nefarious laughs at him in his face. The guy who actually wrote this script, this is his hymnal, and James is quoting it back to, basically Luke Skywalker's quoting back to Yoda what the Force does, okay? he's the jedi master of this and nefarious is laughing in his face because this is his own mark and he looks at him and he says james i think i love you yeah and the reactions to crowds sitting in theaters across the country has been i mean to hear five thousand people at jack hibbs church last week all laugh in unison at that really i that's probably always my favorite moment yeah that's awesome
1: uh so i'm gonna just tell you guys this right now we're scheduled to be done at noon. If you need to leave to go get kids or whatever, we're going to go a few minutes long because I've got three or four questions and I'm going to ask all of them. Okay, we're I will not... make
3: very fast. Or I'll make faster answers. But but if you got to bail, go ahead and
1: bail. But we're going to keep going for a little bit. So um, my wife is actually the one who said, she's the first one who said you've got to get Steve Dace to the Bible conference uh, after we watched *Nefarious* and we had some conversations about it. So yeah, <laughs> thank Good you. job. Um, and. And one of the tipping points for me as I was trying to discern, and we got these speakers and we're trying to like put this together. Um, I listened to a podcast that you did about something that when you were in New York, you were in the hospital and they were trying to discern all the stuff you talked about in the first session with this infection. And is it septic? And, and you're, you spend a night in the hospital and walk for hours and hours around the hospital. And it's very emotional. And the Lord is impressing things on you. And I think this is a particularly interesting question, given what you just said about pastors role. Pastors are supposed to uh, protect the sheep and shoot the wolves. And one of the messages you got from God during that night was, Steve, I need more. I need apostles, not assassins. And you said you are going to be brief in your answers, but this is probably going to take some time for you to unpack. What was the Lord speaking to you specifically? And you're certainly not saying, that we don't need pastors to still shoot wolves? Mm-hmm. Can you answer that?
3: Yeah, so when I was in the hospital, I had a, a, the second time, I had 104 degree fevers for almost 48 hours consistently. And I, they thought all along it was probably an allergic reaction. The, the caliber of antibiotics it takes to beat MRSA are very toxic. Most people can't tolerate them orally at all. You have to be in a hospital getting them intravenously, sometimes for weeks or months. Okay, and it just so happens, I was actually able to tolerate them orally for a while and could live normally for a few days, but then after the, the, the medicines, um, after it defeated the bacteria, I got down to the last two days of the course and it turned on my own immune system. But they need to make sure that I, I'm not sepsis because if they're wrong, if they just stop the medications and it's in my bloodstream, I'm gonna die. So we had to go through the culture process and that takes at least 24 hours. And so they're still pumping me full of these meds that it turns out I'm deathly allergic to. And that night in the hospital, I'm in a wing where Amy can't stay with me. They have to send her home. And because if I'm test positive, they've gotta go get like the, uh, the special disease unit now. I'm like on a national registry, if this is in my bloodstream. And uh, I'm in there by myself. I think I even tweeted out when everybody left, just gonna be me, God and the devil here tonight. Let's see what happens. And I fell asleep for a while and I woke up, maybe the hottest I've ever been, and I just had this compulsion. I had to get up and walk. I mean, I just kept hearing in my head, rise and walk, rise and walk, get up and walk. And so I've got, I've got each, of the, each of my arms and they're bruised badly from multiple IVs of these meds going into my arms. And I just asked my nurse, you know, hey, you guys are always worried about, you know, muscle atrophy because I'm on my back so much. Can, I, can we take these out for just a little bit and can I walk around? She said, sure, you know, she was the night nurse, just stay out of our way, just for a few minutes. This, this, this experimental corridor I was in in this hospital was C-shaped. I walked back and forth barefoot in this, in this um, wing, nonstop for three hours. And it, it was, and suddenly like, like the pain in my arms went away. I could feel, I started sweating, I could feel my fevers breaking. Um, I didn't have a fever after this event. I had no more fevers after this event. And the the results of my culture didn't come back until the next morning, so I was still getting the drugs for a while. And I I walked almost five miles in this corridor on my watch and it was like nothing else was going on in the universe. It was just like, me and God were just like one-on-one. And I, I don't, this is not my native theological tradition. But I, 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 I was convicted of several things. But one thing I audibly heard is I heard a voice in my head say, Stephen, I need apostles and not assassins. And it broke me. Because it convicted me of something about myself I have long suspected, but frankly didn't want to admit and justified because of the way I was raised. and. You know, having to defend yourself against your own father, having to defend your mother against your own father, put, gives you an edge. I, I can't explain it to you. you have never been in that situation. But having to defend yourself against the being and the people that gave birth to you when, you were, when she was 15 years old. And so you and her have a unique bond anyway because you're literally growing up together. And, and having to physically defend her against the person who should be the physical defense for us. It puts an edge on you that I just can't explain to you if you haven't been in that situation. It makes you untrust, makes you not trust people. And and over the years, it built up an edge in me where, yes, a pastor should shoot the wolves. I enjoy shooting too much, I like it. It's not just a duty, a sport. I look for targets. Um, there's, there's being apostolic and then there's being a vigilante. Appointing myself the primary instrument of, of who's got it coming and who doesn't. You know, and if you look at David's life, at the end of David's life, he hands his son Solomon basically a kill list. Hey, these are the people that have to go if you're gonna rule. Like, I mean, like a kill list. And, and that was convicting for me that it, that it is time to finally leave that life behind own up to the fact that most of the mistakes I made in the calling that God gave me is unlike most, most men in, in, my, in, my, in my walk fail because they don't go far enough. When I fail, it's because I went too far. And it's because I used my own justification and anger as, and the wits God gave me to convince people like you that it was the right thing to do when the collateral damage was too high. And I once had an accountability partner of mine say to me, Steve, you're the guy that walks into the mall where the shooter is. All the other guys sit out, afraid. You run in there with a machine gun. And then you just start spraying gu- gunfire all over the mall. And you get the bad guy, he's done, he's done. But then there's like 20 other bodies we're dragging out of there. And that's just to you, acceptable collateral damage because you got the bad guy. You need to learn to be more of a sniper and less of a buck shooter, and and I think that's what what it took several years for God to impress that point to me, and alone in that room, frankly, as broken as I have been since the night of my own salvation, I think that's the night I was finally ready to hear that fully for the first time.
1: Um, The reason I wanted you to tell that is because every one of us needs to go through the process of being willing to be shaped and molded by the Lord and have rough edges sanded off. And I'll just say this. I'm thrilled to hear that you're still going to be shooting a, a sniper rifle. Oh, there there is least. still
3: a long kill list. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> I am just I'm, I just think we need to triple check the list now before we start firing. Bear? Yeah, I got you. Is this the Lord's list or my list? Okay, that's all, that's all I'm okay. saying. A
1: yeah. uh, couple questions that were suggested to me during the break. One is... Um, this is a gathering of, I, this is a. I, I don't know that everyone here is saved, but this is a group of people who, by and large, who love the word of God, who are followers of Christ. In terms of the Big C Church, these, I'd say, we got a pretty high membership rate here. Maybe ninety plus percent people in the room are part of the Big C Church. Um, you made a couple comments about the Little C Church, um, and, and the pulpits and this stuff. What's your analysis of where we're at, Big C Church? compared to Little C Church,
3: and, and what can be done to do better? The Big C Church is too comfortable, and will die in its comfort. We are choking on it. And I say that as a guy that celebrated that we turn the calendar to August 1st, and in 25 days, college football games that count will occur, okay? I, I love the conveniences of being an American. I love the blessings of it. But their hobbies. They're not pursuits. They're not jobs. They're not callings. We have an inverted relationship between our callings and our, and our comfort, and we're dying in it. And the enemy and his people, notice, they're not uncomfortable at all. They're totally comfortable being uncomfortable. And even more, they're very comfortable making you uncomfortable. They love it, in fact. And if you look at the history of any conflict in all of human history, it, they've always been won by the side that was convinced of the most rightness of their cause. Whether their cause was right or not, that's always who wins. In in, in a span of about 35 years, Afghanistan, an armpit of the world, threw out of its country the two greatest empires of the last 100 years, the Soviet Union and the United States. Why? Because, frankly, they wanted they wanted that armpit more than the Soviets and the Americans did. So they were willing to do things the Soviets and Americans weren't. If you go back to our revolution, we didn't really win. The British got tired. They went home. They just, they just jumped on ships at Yorktown one day. We've had enough. I mean, I, who wants to die for New Jersey, for goodness sakes? Right? <laughs> Finally, the Red Coach were like, y'all can have New Jersey. I'm going home. I'm going to be in bed with my wife in a week. Yeah. I'm not doing this anymore. That's why they came back in 1812. The war really wasn't over. They came back just a few years later and burned the White House to the ground. That's when actually the Revolutionary War ended. They just got tired and went home. We, we wanted these colonies more than they wanted to control them. Let's go to our own faith. 110 men and women hiding in an upper room. On the, on the day of Pentecost, they received the Holy Spirit. In a span of a few centuries, they do what conquers across the known world, were unable to. They conquered Rome. How did they do it? Because monks like Telemachus walked out of of the stands one day in the arena during the gladiator games, appalled at what he saw. And he walked down to the floor of the arena during an intermission and he screamed to the crowd in Latin, in the name of Christ, forbear, stop. And they thought it was a joke. They started to laugh. They thought this was intermission entertainment. And he persists, no, stop, this is evil, it's vile, stop it. Finally, one of, the, one of the contestants comes and runs their spear right through him and kills him right there in front of everybody. And the reaction of the community in Rome was so appalled that what happened to this monk that was the last day the gladiator games ever happened in Rome. They never happened in the Colosseum after that. When the, when the apostles say, we count it all joy to suffer for the name, I don't regret at all the suffering I went through for this film. I don't. Sure, would I like to have my right ear back? It may not come back. I was told yesterday, 70% chance they can repair it enough to give me a hearing aid. 30% chance it'll come all the way back. But if it, I'm fine dying for this cause. This is the right cause. Too many of us have no cause we will die for, though. I mean, we worship a savior they tortured to mutilation, and then they hung him out to dry in the sun. Literally, hung him out to dry to choke to death. And they put it. Then they put him in a tomb in, behind a two thousand pound stone and said, "Your, sit, your messiah is dead. Move on." At some point, we should consider if that is our Lord. There may be challenges for us that follow him later. And we are drowning in comfort. And because we won't get uncomfortable, we will not confront. And confrontation, by the way, is not a temperament. You know, when, when your mom, back in the day, called you by your first and middle name, that was a confrontation. It doesn't have to sound like Steve Dace on the air. Confrontation is not a temperament, it's an action. When the Lord says to Adam, Adam, what you doing? That's a confrontation. When the Lord says to the Israelites, go into Canaan and slay everything. You're, you're my Control-Alt-Delete button. That's a confrontation. When Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, and you do not do what I say, that's a confrontation. You can do many manners of confrontation in your own way. Like, when I worked at WHO, one of the neatest things I used to see is we'd have these brainstorming sessions for Van and Bonnie and we we're going to be like the big ideas for their show in the next year and Van would select all the sales staff and, peop- and a few like me and Jan would come and the most creative people in the building and come up with the craziest stuff they could do. And, and so there'd usually be pizza and stuff there and Van and Bonnie would show up late and we would all be in there eating and all the sales staff and everything's in there and let's just say the language wasn't necessarily the Queen's English if you know what I'm saying, right? Here's the thing though, when Van walked into the room, brah, Yo. It was like EF, it was like an EF Hutton commercial. Silence. And it was amazing. We'd be in there for the next hour. Everybody's English was as perfectly clean and clear. It, was, it went G-rated instantly. Now, Van doesn't have my persona, but the aura and respect that he carried with him confronted you in your own unrighteousness and convicted you to raise your standard to his, to be better. Like, there were things you know You might be you you know, you you might be going to your girlfriend's house and you might be saying things to her you don't want her daddy to hear, or her grandma, or her nana to hear. But when you walk in that door and you see Nana over there with a clothing pin, yes, ma'am, right? That's a confrontation. Too many of you are unwilling to confront. Too many of the men who sit in this on this stage, unwilling to confront. And so one side is doing all the confrontation. I promise you, whichever side here, light or dark has the most conviction in the rightness of their cause, which is those kids that were that are all elsewhere on the grounds. Is the cause America? That will be caught up in the undertow of what you do with that generation outside in that building next door to us. That's the cause. And whichever one is more convicted in saying, we're going to save them, it's going to save them. It's just gonna be whose definition of salvation are we talking about?
1: Segways into my next question. You, you mentioned education, and this is not a political question. You mentioned Kim Reynolds. You mentioned that you homeschool. You mentioned that schools have become indoctrination centers. Um, some legislation was passed here in Iowa that gives school choice an opportunity and will give uh, – I'm on the board of a private Christian school here in town, Coach Basketball. Um, is the sphere of education too far gone or – is there a way for it to be redeemed through alternative means that are seeming to get a higher profile?
3: If your worldview begins with the premise that a man was once dead, put in front of a 2,000-pound stone, got up the next, the next day, rolled that stone away, walked out of there like a freaking boss, and nothing ever happened, nothing is ever too far gone. Amen. That's number one, all right? Amen. Nevertheless, let's not be naive. So we homeschooled, you know, Matt, you'll probably remember this, the first time I ever engaged my audience on WHO and activism was over a local school board race with my old friend, Jonathan Narcissus. Even though Amy and I decided all along, our kids are never stepping foot into one of those places in their current condition. So our kids, other than like when they went to ballet recitals or other friends events, never been to a public school. Noah plays football now for Des Moines Christian he has seen more public schools in the last two years than his sisters ever saw in 24 years combined, mm-hmm. all right? Just playing athletics. But I didn't give up on those processes either mm-hmm. because my Lord says I have to love my neighbor as I love myself. Amen. Those kids, aren't, those kids aren't, didn't get up in the morning and say, you know what, hey mom, would you mind going ahead and surrendering my eternal soul to the demonic, satanic youth ministry? Here's looking out, thank you. They didn't do that. They're victims. We cannot leave them behind. Paul writes to the Corinthian church: liars, thieves, or fornicators, adulterers, sexual immorality, homosexuals, murderers. These will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. But such as once were some of you, meaning all of you, on, all of you I'm talking to was somebody on this list until Christ called you. Mm-hmm. He died for those kids in the system too. We cannot abandon them. It is not as simple yet. Protect your children. We protected ours. Now we did not shelter them. Amen. We did not. Our kids, as time went on, they got more mature, were made more and more aware of what the world is really like. We homeschooled our kids to give them a fighting chance. To to instill the truth in them that would help them when they fully had to engage this world, have any shot whatsoever of not getting conquered by it but it was not done to shelter them whatsoever. In fact, when we moved into our neighborhood, our original neighbors sheltered their kids and they homeschooled, they thought we were wrong to let Anna watch Hannah Montana and stuff like that, let our kids trick or treat. They came at us all the time. That family, sadly, completely fell apart. They're divorced, they've got substance abuse. So there is no, you, you, you cannot, I promise you, you will not succeed in creating a hermetically sealed enough environment around your kids that you will save them from this world. Because sooner or later they have to step into it on their own. You need to prepare them to do that. Now, for some of your kids, maybe they shouldn't have watched Hannah Montana when they were 11, I don't know. That's, you know your kids, you know your family. I think if you hear Anna on my radio show now, you kind of think she's prepared for the world. She's kind of got this, okay? She's a chip off the old block, frankly but that but you know that can vary i've got two more kids I, they may not be ready they might go out there and fail I, they're kids they're not formulas they're people and we made our own mistakes and we have to let them make their own and prepare them to make their own and be there for them when they realize they've made a mistake but we cannot leave those kids behind because that would be a mistake. First of all, they're made in our Lord's image. Secondly, our Lord died for them. Thirdly, the wives for your, for your sons, the husbands for your daughters, the bosses for your kids, the public, the public officials for your adult children and grandchildren are largely gonna come from the pool of those kids sitting in those indoctrination centers right now. Leaving them behind. No, I would urge no parent, the idea that your kid is, 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 is evangelizing the public schools, get out of here with that. One of the dumbest things we've done in the history of the church, it was called the children's crusade. No. We protect our children. They are not warriors to be on the front line of a culture war. They're a cherished cultural resource that we are to tend and prepare for their time to be on the front line, but it's not when they're nine. When they're nine, all they need to know is mom and dad love each other and Jesus died for their sins. Go out and play, kid. That's all they need to know. Okay? But we can't leave those other kids behind. I would, I, the, I, I would not subject my own children to that indoctrination, but I also would not leave behind the kids that are being indoctrinated at the same time. If we, ca- if we are not capable of doing that simultaneously, then what are we doing here? That's as, that's, as, that's as hate the sin and love the sinner as it possibly gets.
1: I got one question, a few comments, and we're done. So a guy came up to me a couple nights ago and, and said, I'm praying for the conference. And I just believe that every demon in Blackhawk County knows your name and knows your <laughs> leaders' names and knows about this conference. Congratulations. In, in your case, I mean, every demon in America knows your name, but uh, maybe beyond that. How do you navigate this spiritual battle in a way that is, A, not paralyzing because it's so fearful, fearsome, and B, you don't take flippantly. You take it seriously enough to be prepared, to be girded up, to protect yourself. Uh, Because all of us are in that, to some level, trying to navigate that balance.
3: So a lot of the men of this era are not wired for risk. They've not been asked to take risks. Um, They're not asked to show responsibility. You can get sex from a woman now without any commitment. In fact, she'll just offer it to you before you ask. Um, uh, you know, I, I can just be a ward of the state, I don't have to work. I, the average 25-year-old male in America today is more likely to be living at home with a parent than in another home with a wife and a kid. That's never happened in American history before. That's, that's death of the West stuff. Won't survive that. Uh, we have the lowest combined birth and marriage rates we've had since we started keeping this statistic in the 19th century. And so a lot of, a lot of the, the men of this era are afraid of risk. I'm, that's why I'm, I'm different than a lot of my peers. I went to 11 different schools, K through 12. We moved all the time. On a daily basis, I didn't know if Dave was going to say, we're going to Disney World, or we were going to get the snot beat out of us. And so I kind of learned to live on the edge. I, I kind of learned to get by without a lot of affirmation from people. And I'm used to taking risks. I was the new kid all the time. I got nothing. I had to always, I was always going to be the last kid at tryouts. So I had, and for basketball, I had to be better. I had to be a better shooter than everybody else. Because everybody else had relationships and friends. And they were always going to get picked before me because I was a nobody. And so I just learned early on that risk taking is just kind of where this goes. And, and I just think like more of the men, we need to condition them that taking initiative is part of their masculine obligation. You are to always, 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 always take initiative with the with your wife, with your kids, with your work, always take initiative. It is on you. That's why that drive is there. That drive for significance is there because God put it there because it will drive you to do significant things, but not by the world standard, his standard. The second thing though, is an area where I don't naturally excel. And um, just to put it bluntly, I mean, I've talked about this publicly. Uh, My wife is here. I mean, our marriage nearly fell apart three years ago. And for a long time, we thought we could kind of have separate trajectories spiritually. She had her walk, I had mine. She wasn't necessarily comfortable in my world and, and 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 I could sense that and instead of trying to lead her into my world to be a partner I kind of resented that and we used that to justify saying and doing things to one another we should not have done that God would not bless and we we, we even discussed divorce we discussed divorce attorneys how we were going to split things up and it was at that moment when we got to rock bottom that it was like a light Bulb came on and we just looked at each other, what are we doing? We've been at this for 20 plus years. We're going to be the, this is the biggest Christian cliche of all time. The Christian couple who, who get, who in their middle ages, after spending 15 years raising kids and putting everything into the kids and not their own relationship, so they don't really have their own relationship. And I think a lot of people thought that we did because a lot of the things other Christian couples struggle with, like sex and those sorts of things has never been an issue in our marriage. What we struggled with, though, was true intimacy. Like, are we truly partners? Are we truly friends? Are we on the same path? Are we one flesh? That's what we struggled with. And so this is the biggest cliche of all. The Christian couple, they raise the kids, they go into the pastor's office and say, well, we just think we've grown apart and God wouldn't want us to be happy. And that usually means that he wants to be with somebody he thinks is prettier. And that usually means she wants to be with somebody that will be better and nicer to her. That's usually what it means. And we realized that we were going to be that cliche. And God made us realize it. And God rebuilt our marriage from zero. After 20 years of marriage, homeschooling our kids, you'd think we'd have all the answers, but we didn't have the the most important answer of them all. What to be to and for each other. We didn't have that. And God rebuilt that from zero. And I can tell you, men, I, I just, if, if you're a young man and you can hear my voice on your podcast or you're listening right now, when you find the right woman, get married as soon as possible. Do not prolong adolescence. Get married, become a father, embrace that responsibility, step into it as soon as you possibly can. Put the pressure on yourself to rise up Put yourself in no-lose no, wins, no, no lose scenarios. Failure is not an option because you can't afford to fail the people that God has given you. So you step up and because that's the demand, you will meet that demand because God has that expectation on you and gave you everything, even though a dad maybe never told you this when he should have. Your heavenly father says, I gave you those responsibilities because I gave you everything you would need to step up and handle those responsibilities. And let your wife in. And I didn't do that for a long time. And if she sat here, she'd have an opposite tale. She would say, I didn't want to be in. Even if you opened the door, I wouldn't have walked in for a long time. And that would be her tale to tell. And that would be her testimony. That would be her story. I take responsibility for my side of it. And I feel more conviction, energy, and determination to finish my mission now at 50 that I did at 30. Why? Because the rocket fuel I get from her as a true partner, as someone that is truly walking side by side, hand in hand with me in life in all things, total honesty, we can be honest about everything. If you guys heard what we talked about on our drive out here, it frankly might freak some of you out, okay? (laughs) But these are the sorts of honest conversations husbands and wives with true intimacy need to be having. And and because I now know I have, if all of you desert me, I have one ally in this world that I know will go to the freaking mattresses for me all the way to the end. And that's her. And I am now more prepared to finish the mission God gave me now at 50 than I would have been over the last 20 years of my own salvation. You need to, yeah. That's a
1: that's a very very uh i think profound answer to the question how do we navigate spiritual warfare i mean go back and listen to the answer that in light of the question that was asked um steve thank you for being here put your orders in for the book with joyce and i would say go to amazon go to apple go wherever rent the movie buy the movie even if you're not going to watch it again which i would recommend watching it again i've watched it three times and there are nuances and things you'll come to appreciate watching it multiple times um yeah, thanks for thanks for saying yes. And I'm just going to say a quick prayer and then we're going to dismiss. Heavenly Father, thank you for Steve. Thank you for what you've done to speak through him to us today. Thank you for how you've blessed his trajectory from when he started out way back in the home that he described and then commentaries on WHO and then drive time and then the blaze and now a movie producer and looking at maybe future nefarious content. Would you continue to bless him, bless Amy, bless their marriage and uh, continue to uh, keep him open to hearing from whatever it is that you have to say to him and and keep him obedient and moldable. And uh, I like Steve Dace as an assassin at some level, and so keep him in that role as well. Uh, Blessings on him. Um, We pray in Jesus' name.
2: Amen.
0: to Christian Crusaders 7401 University Avenue Cedar Falls Iowa 50613 In addition to our other podcasts which I mentioned at the front of this episode I want to mention two of our other ministry partners worth checking out First the Cedar Falls Bible Conference equipping believers with the truth of God's word since 1922 visit cedarfallsbibleconference.com for free access to previous conference content or for more information about upcoming events Second is Power to Change Digital Strategies, an online ministry partnering volunteer Christian mentors with people around the world searching the internet for answers. If you or someone you know could benefit from an anonymous online conversation with a caring Christian adult, go to issuesiface.com. Or if you would like to be a volunteer Christian mentor, please visit p2cdigital.com. That's the letter P, the number 2, and the letter C, digital.com. See our episode notes for details and links, and remember to subscribe, leave a five-star rating, and write a review. God's richest blessings to you, and thanks again for listening.